Welcome to Pursuing Call, a place where we explore what God is up to in our lives so that we can participate in God's mission for the world. Find out more at pursuingcall.com. Let's get started. Hello, 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 hello. Welcome back to another week's episode of Pursuing Call with me, your host, Tamara Plummer. I am so grateful to have you here. And thank you for taking the time to listen to the story and the conversation that I have with Andrew Durbridge, the Reverend Andrew Durbridge, who I met as Andrew Australian in my phone when he was just a wonderful uh, intern seminarian trying to figure out what he wanted to do ministerially in his life. We are going to begin the conversation in Andrew's story, and then we'll round out our conversation in a, a little bit of reflection upon what it means to lead a congregation in this post-lockdown life. Um, I won't call it post-pandemic. I will just call it post-lockdown. And, and how does he navigate the challenges of being a parish rector, kind of a regular parish rector? I think most of uh, church leaders in the world are living out this reality of trying to figure out what it means to live into this new normal and to lead a congregation through the healing process that is necessary post or during pandemic slash post lockdown. Um, and, and a great loss as uh, average Sunday, Sunday attendance has gone to half of what it was before and not that it was that great before. Just to forewarn you, I don't know what was going on with my mic, but I was I was having an echo situation go on, and so don't really know what that was about. Um, but please excuse that audio. Um, also, what do you need to know? Oh, for reflection, and because I'm not going to do an end commentary, my reflection for you for this conversation is to is going to come at the end, which is. What does worship feel like to you these days? And why do you worship in community? If you are doing that in community, why do you worship online? If you're doing that online, why do you worship alone if you're doing that alone? And what kind of worship experience would give you what you needed, would feed your soul to build deeper connections with the divine? And so if you want to share that with me, if you want to talk about it with me on the pod, I'd welcome that conversation. Um, it's about to be my birthday. It's my birthday month. So I'm going to say this every single week until December 19th and through the 1st of January because Christmas babies love talking about their birthdays. But celebrating my birthday. Um, I think that's all the announcements that we have. So let's get started with our conversation with the Reverend Andrew Durbridge. So uh, my name is the Reverend Andrew Durbridge. I am the Episcopal priest at the Church of St. Luke and St. Matthew in beautiful Clinton Hill, Brooklyn, in New York. Um, I have been here as the uh, in a full-time capacity since the beginning of 2019 um, and uh, was made the rector here last year. Just a, just a year ago. You did it, Andrew. You made it. <laughs> but you have a different relationship with St. Luke and St. Matthew, don't you? 
I do, yes. I, I was actually here as a seminarian before I even figured out priesthood might have been in my future. So um, I came here in uh, 2012, in uh, September of 2012, and right before uh, Sandy hit New York. And I was here for a couple of years. And it was um, it was great. It was a great parish, and that's where I met you. That is how we know each other. That's right. You, up until recently, your name in my phone was Andrew Australian. <laughs> and that's very true, because I, uh, I came from Australia to go to seminary in uh, 2011. Mm. And, um, and I've been here ever since. Um, why did you leave Australia to go to seminary? Um, principally... I wanted to go to seminary to research some theological questions about being gay and Christian. Mm -hmm. um, I had started a business 10 years beforehand back in 1999 and basically had burnt myself out within 10 years. And part of that burnout was a lot of um, uh, friction with the church that I was a part of the Anglican church in Sydney and it was very evangelical. Um, our parish wasn't, but it, it, the whole question around being gay and being accepted in the church really started to um, adversely impact me. And yeah, especially in 1999. In that that's time, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and soon thereafter, the, the, the conservative archbishop was appointed uh, or was elected. And then Gene Robinson was consecrated as a bishop over here. Mm -hmm. And the Anglican Church in Australia, certainly the Sydney Diocese, took an adversarial position on that and started to ramp up the rhetoric around um, that gay and lesbian people weren't welcome in the church. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, over time, and I used to come to the States visiting friends every now and again, I'd go to an Episcopal church and I couldn't understand why you could have these in the Anglican communion, why they have these two very disparate understandings of mm -hmm. human sexuality. Did you go to like a St. Bart's where there are like pride flags everywhere? Or, you know, they, depending on the churches that you're going to in the U.S., you might have had different uh, things. But what kind of churches were you going to? Well, I think the first church I went to was in Chicago, um, St. Peter's in Lakeview. Um, and it was very Anglo-Catholic. And it was sort of like, whoa, I'm not used to this. Mm -hmm. um, and it was Christmas Eve. So, you know, I, I didn't really do much. Lots of smells and bells. Lots of smells and bells. And then the second time I was in Los Angeles in Santa Monica and I went to the local Episcopal church there and had a really wonderful experience, um, just really welcoming and open. And um, a woman was a priest, which in Sydney, the Anglican church. Were you, still not, were you still not ordaining? Are they still not ordaining women yet? They do to the diaconate, but they don't ordain them to the priesthood. I didn't even know that was still a thing in the Anglican communion. Continues. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it certainly does, certainly in Sydney. And some of the other sort of some of the other conservative devices have have sort of come around, but but mm -hmm. certainly Sydney is not. Um, so yeah, so in in that sort of uh, wrestling with with what this meant and why I sort of had these two understandings, um, I sort of got burnt out, and so I was looking for a sabbatical year, and so I decided that I would do some theological study and was then looking at where to do it and the seminary in Sydney was very conservative. So I started looking outside and my sister lived in England and I started looking in London, you know, like mm. searching the world mm. and then came across general seminary here in New York. And because I had friends here, um, 
and uh, and I really sort of decided I wanted an Anglican sort of education, and I, and and so I enrolled as just an MA student, um, and then a few months into seminary, my life changed, and the trajectory of life changed. Then, so yeah, um, can you talk about? what happened that made you switch from, oh, I just have theological questions to I want to be ordained to the priesthood? Yeah. So when uh, when I got to seminary, even before, so on the first day of um, orientation, uh, my mother passed away in Australia. Hmm. And I went through a sort of a quite a, it was, she was frail and, and aging, but it wasn't expected that she was going to die. When I left six weeks beforehand, she was in quite good spirits. And, you know, mm-hmm. so it was a bit of a shock to me, but but it wasn't a shock. And, you know, the the way God speaks to you is, is always a little bit strange um, in that uh, I went, the, when I went to church that morning, chapel, because we had chapel every morning, one of the professors, my Old Testament professor, was preaching a sermon about sort of coming to seminary and the things we leave behind when we come to seminary that you know he was speaking to everybody of course mm-hmm. but for me you know it was very um leaving my mother was very uh you know it's sort of a, a big emotional yeah. connection that i had to australia and i you know I said well she's the thing that's keeping me there so while she was alive i'd go back every six months and then eventually after my two years of study i'd go back to australia but then when she died it was sort of like well what does that sort of mean for me now? Hmm. And over the next few months, um, I, I sort of started to feel that there was this sort of releasing of each other. So, you know, she was released from her her sort of um, frailty, I guess, at, at, in, in her ageing, and I was sort of released from that uh, sort of emotional connection to Australia because that was really all that was holding me there. Mm-hmm. So then I started to wonder, wonder where God's calling me in all of this. And... You know, I started to really enjoy seminary. I really enjoyed the learning. I really enjoyed my classmates who became terrific friends. Um, and then I started to talk to the school chaplain about this journey and where God might be leading me. I then started to talk to the president of the school, who was a bishop. Um, and then I and then part of coming to St. Luke and St. Matthew, which was then a year later, was to go through discernment um, and when I came over to see the priest that was here at the time Father Sniffen it was my discussions with him were, were about I don't know where this is leading and I'd like to do some sort of discernment with you about you know whether you feel that I might be called to do something other than you know, being a lay member of the church and and so he agreed with that and um, and so we worked together for a year and then part of the academic side of it, I needed to change courses. So I changed from the, the Master of Arts into the, the Master of Divinity, and which was an extra year and involved some other, you know, other subjects and things. And, um, and then a year later, uh, another year later in 2013, I entered the formal discernment process with the Diocese of Long Island. Um, and they had a one-year process and you went through the summer of discernment, which was group discernments, and then you were invited to the postulants conference, which was a six months later. They went, you know, went and do all your psychological testing, and um, and then 
the aspirants, I guess, that, that were left in the pool, <laughs> went to the postulants conference and then the bishop invited, I think there was only three of us invited uh, actually to become postulants. And then right. one thing led to another and here I am a priest. What about your discernment process said priesthood versus layperson though? That's, I think that's the part that's often hard for people to understand. Yeah. I realized as I was going through it that my discernment really did start back in Australia when I sort of started started wrestling with these questions. And I, and I, um, I said, you know, in, we talk about understanding what God's doing in Revelation, you know, what, what's gone in the past. So it, it took me a while to go back and to sort of see how all of these different disparate things had sort of joined together in this journey I was on. Um, and as I, when I went to seminary, I never really was intending to be a priest, but it just, I guess, going through the first year, and probably two years, there was just a lot of affirmation um, from other people that they saw me as a priest. Mm. And it took me a long time to see myself as a priest. And I still remember a very, a very clear uh, session of spiritual direction because uh, when we were in seminary we were hooked up with a spiritual director which I'd never had before mm. um, and she was a wonderful woman and she said to me one day she said you know we've been talking about this for a year and and um, you know you're on this on this track she says but I still haven't heard you say I want to be a priest mm. and it was like well no <laughs> I actually said that um, and there was a funny shift that really happened when I when I actually could say that, and then and then we prayed about it, and I was like, no, I think I am being called to the priesthood. Um, and so there was all that discernment, but then there, I still had to take ownership of it. Like I had to I had to basically say, yes, I I understand all of this now, and I understand where God's calling me, and this is what I'm prepared to do, which is still it still was um, not affirmed by the bishop because I was in the last part of my, just that formal discernment process before he made me a postulant. So, but I still like to own it because I think when it helped me then when I went to the postulants conference to actually talk more, um, I wanted to say assertively, but but maybe that's a bit too strong a word, but <laughs> to talk more um, holistically that this is what I think this journey has been all about, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you know, it was it took a long time, and my my certainly my discernment was very different to everyone else that was in seminary, because mm -hmm. um, a lot of my discernment was actually at, at seminary in the right. first, that first year or so. Because I need to do I that think before I'm, they get there, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's right, and that's that's very true. A lot of people do that, and because you know in Australia, I never would have even I would never would have had the opportunity called her. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think called as a priest certainly in Sydney, so it never crossed my mind it's very strange I go back and look through my diaries and look at word you know things and prayers that I was saying and stuff and still shake my head is it do you think your or maybe I'll ask this question first did you ever have an internal battle about your sexuality and your theology oh definitely yeah yeah I think mainly because when I grew up which was you know I was born in 62 so you know my formative years were sort of late early late 60s early 70s and you know it's just really the start of gay liberation the very mm -hmm. early 
I mean, I knew nothing about the the um, the movement Stonewall over here, or any of that. Stonewall <laughs> or anything like that. But but you know, and I really, and I was young, and you know, the, the, we only had newspapers and the radio sort of thing. My father mm-hmm. didn't even have a mm-hmm. television until I was uh, older than that. But I I internalized the judgment of God in in my understanding of my sexuality, and I never came out to um, uh, family or friends until you know in my 30s so Mm -hmm. uh, but I do remember when I was in church when I was old enough to go to church without you know away from Sunday school and listening to the sermons that were preached I do recall um, you know sermons on the evilness of of homosexuality Mm -hmm. and you know I, I probably I was I knew that I was different and I knew that I was attracted to to men but I wasn't I wasn't sure what that looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I started working, you know, I, I, I worked in the building industry and, you know, so I was sort of in a, so I wasn't quite, I wasn't able to sort of uh, reconcile myself as a gay man and, and being a Christian. And the way that sort of manifested in my life was when I was 17, um, I actually went to a Billy Graham crusade with my family because that's what in 1979 we all went you know it was all Mm. a big thing went forward got because I felt I felt you know the call was all about repenting and Mm -hmm. and um uh you know the the sinfulness of of all of us so I felt drawn to go forward went forward and probably a month later I stopped going to church Mm -hmm. um and didn't go back to church for 20 years um and I think all of that time I was I was trying to understand myself as a gay man and and live, being able to live in uh, in the world as as someone that was open. And right. I think when when the church kept speaking about the evilness of, of being gay, I really couldn't reconcile that. Um, and it, you know, I, I mean, I couldn't settle into relationships or anything because mm-hmm. I'd be I'd start a relationship and then this judgment would come up into my mind and and it would break, you know, it would just sort of make me respond in the way in the relationship that that I I, I couldn't get close to when it, you know, it, was, it was like whoa you know mm-hmm. <laughs> so where this is going I you know I got to back out of this this is not good this is sinful and 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 uh and that went on for about you know 10 or 15 years so that sounds like a really hard time because it was both, a very yeah it was a very hard time you're like distance from your it's not like you were like now I'm gonna go be a hoe and have a good yeah. time like you couldn't yeah. even have like the joy of like living into your sexuality and trying things out see what happens like it sounds like it's almost like you're resisting this this thing that is an integral part of human nature and society and then also then not having the closeness of like you also didn't go kind of super evangelically i'm a christian who is straight or like like, you didn't choose kind of the polar the polarities of that experience that i often hear yeah no i i I felt I was lost in the middle of it. And mm-hmm. um hence you became you sat in your anglicanism and sat in the middle. Sounds yes. right. yeah, that's right. I was like, oh, I don't know where to go, you know, I don't know what to do. But I but I always felt the sense of God's presence. Um and but 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 I couldn't I couldn't reconcile that God that I felt sort of close to in the sense that there was a there was a sort of a spirit around me, someone I prayed to. Mm-hmm. And and this other other nature of God that I had in my mind, which was this judgmental God, um, and so when you know in the times that I did go out partying with everyone, you know, 
both you were feeling guilty Release. in any place. <laughs> yeah, just it, it, you know, and 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 sort of you don't, you feel like you don't fit anywhere. Yeah. You know, yeah. because if I went to church, you get judged. Couldn't be open at church. You get judged for being a gay person at church. My, I couldn't tell my family because I felt because they were all very deeply Christian and like they would judge me as well, you know, and then they'd reject me. And, you know, so you sort of, and, and in those days, you know, that's why the gay ghetto sort of formed because yeah. this is the only place you felt a belonging. Right. Um, but even there, it sounded like you were a little bit not belonging also in some ways. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, because, you know, you had a job and I was working in a very straight industry, the construction industry. And so I didn't come out there either. So Andrew, yeah. the carpenter, I just love you for a carpenter. It just makes me so excited. It's I like, love when I meet Christian carpenters. Um, uh, it makes me think about, I mean, today we would probably, many would say that we're kind of in a more freeing and liberative time. You know, a lot of kids, you'll see them do the YouTube post of coming out to their family and their family's like, yeah, we knew. Do yeah. you want breakfast? And like yeah. the kids, like, wait, what? <laughs> it's yeah. not, you know, it's like not a big deal. Yeah. Um, and even though mm, the is mm, the side of the church that does not believe in human dig in like human dignity, because I can't believe I can't really sit in like that they don't agree that whatever they have an expansive idea of human sexuality. If I'm being generous, yeah. in reality, they just um, still living in like a very limited understanding of God's vision for our world. Yeah. Um, if I'm not being generous. Uh, if you were yourself today, do you think you would have struggled as much if growing up in a time of kind of more liberative theologies around sexuality, do you think the priesthood thing would have been easier for you? Or do you think it still would have been? I think it would have been easier, but I think if I, if I had the same... Well, if I had the parents that had the same belief system today, I'd probably still struggle in that relationship with them. Right. Um, mainly because I think, like a lot of people, we don't want to be rejected by mm. our families. Um, you know, I told my brother and sister, my brother's gay, younger brother is gay, and, and I told my sister, um, both of them, you know, seven or eight years before I ever told my mother it was and I was up I never told my father he died before I could um well yeah before I came out so um but you know I think there's there's a lot of people a lot of young um, LGBTQ people who still struggle to um come out especially in deeply religious families because mm -hmm. of that reject the, the risk for rejection both family and also friends mm -hmm. and, I, and I think there's a lot um there's a lot of young people still struggle with that and that's why I, you know I I grieve for the for the lives that are lost for young gay people you know gay and lesbian people transgender kids that don't get the opportunity to really um find find a sense of belonging um, um as you know as they're trying to come out um, mm -hmm. uh, I think it's one of the hardest things to do in life. Yeah, yeah. Be true to that. I mean, it's 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 hard in differing ways depending on your marginalized identity too, right? Like there's sure, yeah. There's um the the reconciliation that black folks have to go through in in reconciling like 
a white supremacist Christianity and, yeah, yeah. and their black identity or, um, yeah. you know, out of women who live in a patriarchal Christianity that like I call to some kind of leadership. What does that mean? Yes, for sure. And I, I see women struggle with that in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being part of a, a church that they've always known, the Anglican church, but but realizing that really the the church speaks to them you know, as a second second class citizen, basically, that the, the, the women weren't considered equal with the men and the, the men only were the ones that could teach, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, it's... I remember one of the first classes I took in uh, in a religious engagement, we talked about this a lot, like the ways in which, probably because Union is filled with a lot of people who have been harmed by their <laughs> tradition, yeah, yeah, and they're yeah. trying to kind of work out those questions, what do I do now? Yeah. Um, the, tra- the thing that brings you healing and love is also the thing that harms you and hurts you. Yes. And, and that is a difficult place to live in. Like, I know God loves me, but my institution that is associated with the God that loves me does not love me. Yes. Um, how did you, or what theology did you develop for yourself or did you start to explore that helped you to reconcile those pieces? Um, I think I need, I... Well, you found a new institution. That's I found <laughs> yeah yeah I found a new institution and then I had to culturally adjust to that mm. inst- that institution because it was so much more progressive and 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 saw God in a completely different way than what I'd been formed as or, or, or you know just because because that's all I knew um, and. I needed to understand God's by both experiencing the love of others mm-hmm. and and trusting that 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 God would would accept me for who I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I, I read I read a lot. People referred books to me. Um, um, and and so. It was, it was, I suppose, understanding God accepts everybody for who they are mm-hmm. because we're all created in the image of God, which for me is the, is the spirit of God, that, that we're all, um, um, we all have access to that equally. Mm-hmm. And one of my clergy, um, my priests in Australia, I remember preaching a sermon that basically said, you know, before you can love God, you've got to love yourself. Mm. And it took me a long time to love myself mm-hmm. to enable me to find the love of God in a way that 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 sort of spoke to my place, my my being, I guess. Um, and you know, a lot of a lot of the reflection on that was was around getting a deeper understanding of Jesus and how Jesus related to people understanding the other, you know, like not, you know, that those that are discarded and sort of moved to the edges of society because of the, the sort of power structures that exist and, you know, trying to reconciling all of that um, 
and realizing that that's all sort of human constructs and it's not where God was mm -hmm. or God is. Um, so, so it was sort of just a process of all of that and, and um, maturity, I guess. In my, <laughs> what do you think? Maturity just in my understanding of God, you know? So um, as you said today, where do you, where do you, what is your theology of sexuality or is your theology of, maybe you just said it, but are there writers, are there um, folks that you, if a young person comes, to, I'll put it this way. If a young person came to you today and was like, hey, yeah, I'm struggling with this, com this conversation, my sexuality, my gender identity and the love of God. Yeah. What are the two, three questions and or resources that you would help them? access the 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 two spiritual writers that were most impactful for me which i think still and i've referred these two to to other people as well was henry nouwen mm -hmm. um and especially his book um life of the beloved mm. and parker palmer's um let your life speak Mm -hmm. my my pastoral counseling to someone who was coming and asking telling me that that you know that they were having the that you know this was this was impactful in their life um i would talk to them about who they see they who who do they see themselves as in their truest sense and mm -hmm. and trying trying to encourage them to see themselves as um as acceptable like do they do they accept themselves for who they are even and and you know those because i think that's so important for us that we have to accept ourselves even before we can accept the love of god mm. the love of jesus that um and and so there's a there's a process of um of understanding that more deeply um yeah there is something about um recently was at the what the heck is this thing called oh pandemic brains don't work anymore um reimagine worship right okay. <laughs> i'm there uh and it was a lesbian i think she identifies as lesbian woman talking about her journey to the episcopal church and yeah. kind of her own struggles with sexuality and all that stuff and um described this idea that god's love had teeth and how much she just wanted like her transformation was so much about the moment where she went up to the altar and nobody asked she's like do i need a secret handshake to get communion or like do i <laughs> whatever like like no i just can come as myself yeah. wherever I am to the table and put my hand out and receive. Yeah. But, but I think what you're talking about is like the belief that you should even be allowed to walk to the table. Like there is something that has to be internally understood about oneself yeah. to believe that even if you are not fully okay with all that you are, that you, that you have the power to walk to the table and receive something from, from God. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think because I think that action of coming forward is a is a giving in itself because you you know you're giving because you have to physically move mm -hmm. um, 
but you're receiving at the same time. So, but you've got to have the confidence to be able to know that what you're going to receive is not is love. <laughs> yeah. Like, you, you know, because yeah. I think, because um, I think, you know, a lot of people come into church and, and they are carrying a lot of, a lot of apprehension, a lot of guilt, a lot of uncertainty about, you know, coming into this sort of sacred space, mm-hmm. um, you know, walking into a community. And when you're vulnerable like that, it can take a lot to participate. Uh, and so helping people to, to make that um, Make that journey without fear, if you like, you know, to mm-hmm. that they're that to to help people understand that they're accepted and this is a community of equals. Um, you may not feel like that all the time, but it really <laughs> is that God calls us forward as 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 equals, mm-hmm. sharing this you know this sacred meal which represents um, his his love for his for his friends and gathering people together and. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so to to come forward and and to be to know you're forgiven to receive this this sacred meal um, and to participate is is a sign of God's love for you. So you know so you know I think people once once people are able to do that, I think then there's a there's a they start to be able to develop a deeper connection. Um, but even to walk forward despite one's fear, like to to that even the fear is welcomed at the table, even the yeah misapprehension, yeah. and even if you don't totally believe, like the fact that you're taking the act to to move forward, as you said yeah. earlier, is does require some inner work um, as much as it does yeah. to understand what you are receiving. Yeah. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 I think, and I, and I'm. I'm yeah, I think believe that's the Holy Spirit at work. Mm-hmm. When you feel that desire to 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 come further in and to participate, um, is the draw of the Spirit, which is always drawing us closer to God. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, not you know when when you feel that draw, the 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 counter of that is that the fear keeps us back. Right. 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 So, so yeah, there's this, there's often a struggle, yeah. Um, in uh, in should I participate? Should I be coming into church? You know, all that sort of mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. But, but I always say to people, listen, listen to the desire, listen to your curious heart, you know, and 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 just just be be with it for a while, you know, just just, mm-hmm. just sit in that um, very interesting place. Mm. So. That makes me want us to shift a little bit to this experience of being um, a rector of a parish in a post-pandemic world. Um, (laughs) ASA, as we know, is half of what ASA was before pandemic, um, average Sunday attendance for the non-church nerds in the world. Um, And pre-pandemic, it was, it's not like ASA was all that great anyway. <laughs> so, yes. um, what is that experience like for you today? What is that like being a rector of a, of a parish? Um, it's very interesting. 
um, <laughs> it's it's challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read a lot about clergy burnout mm-hmm. um, in that a lot of clergy just didn't respond well to having to shift and adjust and be creative in a in a sort of a pressure cooker of yeah um, everybody's going through this sort of thing mm-hmm. or running a bunch of funerals or yeah well exactly yes that's right a lot of a lot of clergy were traumatized by the amount of congregants and, and you know others that died and the the worst thing i think for families and and for clergy was was the isolation in that the normal process of grieving death wasn't able to happen because mm-hmm. you couldn't go to the hospital to do pastoral visits you couldn't be with the family to to grieve with them the funerals were either you know in the early days were just at the graveside mm-hmm. um with a couple of people you know and and it was it was really all the things that hold us together in in death and grief were were absent and that was very difficult and a lot of people you know a lot of clergy and especially in um communities of color where there was a lot of a lot of death um i think really suffered mm-hmm. and, and, you know you, you carry trauma forward until you deal with it and right. there wasn't a lot of chance a lot of time to deal with stuff in that in that two years because you were called upon to solve all sorts you know like to be the technical guru of your parish like everyone right, had to go online right. so if you wanted to hold your congregation together you had to go online so we all had to learn zoom we all had to learn you had to teach stuff. people how to do zoom and you have to yeah teach that's right and then yeah. the, then you need to do improve the cameras and then you need to improve the sound because more people were coming you know mm-hmm. um and i think all of that took a lot took a big toll uh, here at this parish you know 18 months beforehand that had a, a difficult pastoral separation from their from their last rector mm-hmm. and so the church was already grieving a lot of a lot of change through 2018 so when i came in 2019 a lot of the the year was spent really addressing um a lot of that mm-hmm. and and then it was like just as we thought of we thought the church was going to settle a little bit settle, yeah, and start, <laughs> yeah you know i start to look forward then the pandemic hit and so we we got hit twice um actually yeah, I would count three times three times yes I would say I would say the the loss of of sniffin yes was abrupt and was and was a which kind of set up the pastoral dilemma when we got yes. around there yeah that's true that is um, true yeah I I'm like when you say trauma gets taken through I think it's true for communities as well I think sometimes and it's not I don't think it's specific to St. Luke and St. Matthew but I think a lot of congregations don't get set up well for the next rector. Like, yeah. I don't know that that we've done a good job as an institution helping people to grieve the loss of an old leader and and then truly sit in some time alone to figure out what's next. Like it's yeah. it, it felt, as a parishioner, it felt very much like, well, you need to have somebody in place in order to be a functional church. So let's like, let's yeah. hurry up and make that happen. And I was like, we don't know how to be a functional church and we will destroy any leader that comes. Yeah. Was what yeah. I, my argument was, I was like, no, no, functional church does not require us a leader, a specific ordained clergy leader. Yeah. Like whatever is dysfunctional now, it's just going to be differently dysfunctional when we have a clergy that's, leader. That's right. Like, 
That's right. Well, that's <laughs> that's good. Yeah. And that that's what that's what eventually happened. I think that mm-hmm. it was a desire of of the broad diocese to get someone straight after Michael because there was a there was a concern because we're working on the bishop's staff. There was a, a concern that the goodwill and the community that that had formed around the older congregation, but also the newer people, especially around those folks that were coming from the Occupy Wall Street movement and the Occupy Sandy movement, which was based here. Um, that there was the worry that they're going to all bleed away, and and so there was this rush, which and a and a truncated process, which wasn't wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then then the inevitable happened. Mm-hmm. Just it was coming up; it all fell in a heap again. Younger people left, families left because of no one wants to be around conflict, especially with, with no. young people. So I think especially congreg- when you're like tired every day anyway. I mean, the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. To be transparent, you don't have to co-sign anything, Andrew, because you know you still are there. But like, yeah. the reason I left Sunday was because I work for the church. Like I work for the church institution, and I'm seeing what was happening in St. Luke's St. Matthew is not unique to that location. It was like true about many churches that I encounter yeah. on the road or or church institution conversations that people are having kind of across the denomination. Yeah. I was like, I do this every single day at work. Like, I do not want to come to church on Sunday morning and have to sit through some other meeting about how people need to fix the if we just had good music, then everybody would come back to church. Like I just I was like, I can't. Yeah. I can't, I can't do this. Yeah. <laughs> this can't be my this can't be the place where I'm getting spiritual life from. Like that's yeah. not gonna yeah. work. Yeah, it can't me. be another job, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I remember leaving and being like, I cannot do Sunday morning worship. Yeah. I just can't do it. Yeah. But just continuing on about the, about post-pandemic life, yeah. I think congregations have definitely reduced in size. Mm-hmm. You know, people have left town, people have retired, people are experiencing church in, in the online world and, you know, in many other ways. But I also, also feel like communities have changed like there's a community trauma that's happened that Mm -hmm. that has it has a met has impacted people and most of us don't understand how that is Mm -hmm. um you know as as the psychology of gathering um and and now that everything's opening back up again i think a lot of families and stuff everyone's torn between you know, am I working at home and I'm working, am I working in the office? Uh, we all have that. So everyone's having to go through that. Schools are all back in person. Mm-hmm. Offices are getting back in person. So people are adjusting still to all of that. And I, I remember reading or seeing an interview on on um, one of the television shows about this, this gentleman had sort of studied these things that, you know, the pandemic life cycle about five years. Mm-hmm. First two years of the critical stage that, you know, everyone's in crisis. You're trying to get through that. Third year is all about like adjusting economically. And, and then the last two years about people adjusting psychologically. Mm-hmm. And so we're still, you know, we're, we're just now entering the psychological adjustment stage. Yeah. So, I, so I mean, churches just, have to go through that as well. Well, what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me too, especially if people's grief was not soothed by the in-person gathering in a sacred space because we couldn't. Yeah. It even as people are trying to adjust psychologically to the grief that they're still carrying, 
they may not even understand the church and maybe the church doesn't understand how to hold their psychological grief or to be an in-person place for grieving people together. Like I, it's just a question yeah. that's popping up right now for me. Yeah, it's, and, and, that's, and that's hard when you've got 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 people coming to church for, for, A, for people to be able to express what they're experiencing. And I think a lot, a lot of people don't understand how the psychology of the pandemic is playing out in their lives. Um, and for most churches, you're seeing people once a week, if you're lucky, mm -hmm. maybe once every two weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, for, for an hour, an hour and a half, two hours maybe on the Sunday. Um, and unless you're specifically doing programs for, for small group work to help people process that stuff, Mm -hmm. um, it's it's very difficult, I think, for certainly for single clergy in parishes to to be able to do all of that, um, all that sort of work that that, that probably needs to be done. Yeah, because there's like the individual trauma, there's the communal trauma, but then there's also like getting a bulletin made. Yeah, just the practicality. Revising staff members, like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> writing a sermon, doing your own self care and stuff yeah. like. Yeah, it's a, it's, I, so here's my theory, Andrew, this is my, yeah, this is my theory of the future. I think that we have over-clergied our church, and then we expect clergy to do things that used to be lay people's jobs. Yeah. And so if we actually just let clergy be clergy, if they actually just did sacramental life, if they actually just did pastoral care, if they actually just did pastoring, focus their energy in that space and, and empowered a laity or employed a laity to worry about the boiler and yeah. <laughs> all of that stuff uh, to lead the, the, the vestry meeting or whatever, yeah. that we actually would see fuller church, churches because it would free up clergy to actually be in community to actually yeah. like, and it might also empower some lady with those same similar skills to be pastored by a pastor who can help them pastor other people, if that makes sense. Like, no, it's, it's I think that's right. And and I was just thinking, as you're saying that, I think, you know, that our predisposition as, as people and, and the clergy is you fall back on your strength, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, most of us are coming to the priesthood after some experience of work, some, some career sort of experience, um, and, you know, sort of second career people, second vocation people. And, and I think once you get in, I've found here anyway, once, because we've had two major projects, multi-million dollar projects going on here. So my background's real estate. So, you know, I found myself sort of supervising these two big projects because mm -hmm. that's where my natural strength is like focusing on the finances because that's where my strength is mm -hmm. when my heart would rather be focusing on pastoral care and and doing visitations and you know mm -hmm. doing that sort of stuff so it's it's trying to it's trying to find the resources to do the things the, the mechanics of running a parish mm -hmm. um but if no one's going to step up and right. I know part of part of the role of the clergy is to empower people because it's part of people's stewardship. You know, you're building up the congregation, building up the community. But still, if people aren't going to be doing those those jobs or not not, you know, you can't just find someone to do the finances or something. Then you have to really do it. 
Right. Um, as the principal paid employer of the parish, there's a lot of expectation from the community that you've got your finger across, or, you know, on all right. these issues, these critical right. issues. Right. Especially finance, where it's so easy for a parish to burn through finance and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. not have money and, you know, then you've got crisis again. Right. Um, yeah, it's, 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 I think, yeah, I think that education has to happen on multiple ends because there's an expectation of congregants, particularly historical, long-time attendees of a congregation to expect their priest to be everything to yeah. everyone. And yeah. we, I think we also, I mean, you are, I actually would not agree. I would say that a lot of people I see going into, into clergy roles these days are younger people who have never had any less experience. <laughs> 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 and I keep wondering why, we're, and I'm not saying you shouldn't ordain young people. That is not my, but like, if you ain't never had a job, like a real one where you yeah. have to pay bills, you don't get to be ordained. I'm sorry. Like, I just need you. I need you to have had to look at some cup of noodle and be like, all right, how do I make two meals out of this? Yeah. Like, I just, I just, I just, I just have a hard time. Yeah. And um, certainly I would have thought younger you know, I guess when you're in a career, you get you're you're involved with different people. You're involved in a hierarchy. You know, you're sort of having to do a lot of interpersonal searching yourself and and mm-hmm. building relationships and stuff mm-hmm. to get stuff done. Um, if you don't have that experience, certainly in a church with with the various the political nature of the dynamics of a church environment, the culture of churches is very different to a work environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't have the ability to manage into that. Um, that that can be very difficult for you I agree yeah mostly because I think that like I I keep saying um, I think part of the discernment process should be me interviewing people so my interview questions would be things like do you really like having tea for about four hours in a woman's living room if your answer is no you should probably not be a parish priest that's right that's right. Do you, can you listen to someone for an hour? Right. Can you listen to someone you absolutely don't agree with yell at you about how the font size and the bulletin is not appropriate? Yeah. Then you probably shouldn't be a parish priest. Right. <laughs> can you tell somebody who's been an usher for 45 years that they are bad at their job and not creating a welcoming environment? Yeah. If not, you probably shouldn't be a parish priest. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so many people will be like, well, I just love the Lord. I just love God. I just, so, so I just, God just transformed my life. I'm like, that's great for you. That's not a parish priest. (laughs) No, that's right. I remember remember Father Father Chris said to me here, he said, why do you want to be a parish priest? You know, you're going to be cleaning the floor and scrubbing the toilets. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. When Chris was assisting, I think a lot of his job often was like, snaking a toilet <laughs> yeah but like you, you know open the church up and you realize something hasn't been done I was like okay well I gotta do it then you know I gotta exactly. make this place ready for whatever it is yeah exactly um, exactly yeah that's that's it's an interesting time it's yeah. an interesting time so how yeah. are you finding joy or whatever finding something to, <laughs> to keep you going in the process as we sit in this kind of 
in between time? Um, I think I've, I found joy in a couple of very close colleagues. We've we've started a Bible study a year or so ago, um, which which you know Bible study and just being together. Um, mm -hmm. We're all, all three of us are priests. Um, one in this diocese, one in in New York, um, and something I've found lately that gives me great joy is teaching. Mm. Um, we've we've had some young people that have been interested in in confirmation so we started a sort of book discussion group confirmation class um and also we've just had a couple of book discussion groups over the last 12 months um and i found them joyful really joyful mm. and especially this latest one which because it's been intergenerational learning we've had grandmas all the way down to these teenagers and everyone's been open and and willing to listen to each other and to to talk and I found it to be really really just empowering to talk about about our faith together um, from the wisdom of the older folks to the the curiosity and questioning of the younger the teenagers um, mm -hmm. and and that's been great so I found you know if you're enjoying that and I, and I you know I just try and keep fit and and if I keep myself physically fit, I tend to be more psychologically fit mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and spiritually fit. And um, but you got to you got to be conscious of it and work at it. You know, it's well, Andrew. I will go. I will go to book club. I'm not going to church, but I'll go to book club. <laughs> Come, eleven thirty Sunday. I'd love to have you. No, I'll always do that. I hate. I I can't even. I the thing that I'm struggling with, so maybe this is therapy for me. This is, this is the time of the podcast where I get my own spiritual direction. Yeah. Um, it should be two ways. Uh, why should I go back to church? So this is the thing. Here's what I'm struggling with. Yeah. I still get mad when I go to church on Sunday morning, like anybody's church. Right. <laughs> There's a moment where I'm sitting there and I'm like, ah, oh that person just like because I am not Anglo-Catholic but I do believe in a well-organized service the liturgical like, service yeah. yeah I just I just I can't stand mistakes of the nature where like it seems like no like nobody got it nobody's in charge of what's happening like people are just kind of moving around the altar and nobody yeah. seems to know what's happening like I can't do it yeah that's the first thing and then the second thing is Sunday morning by Sunday morning I'm exhausted I'm tired yeah. And then the third thing is like all the church drama around it. Like if I go into a church and I either get asked, how old am I? Um, where are my kids at? Uh, where's yeah. my husband? Um, where uh, do I want to run youth group? I'm just like, I am a 95 year old Jewish lady from the Upper West Side in my spirit. That's who I am. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Stop talking to me. <laughs> right. Like if you were like, hey, we have Bible discussion group. Do you want to yeah. join? I'd be like, sure. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, so this so and I think I'm not I think also there's a group of us, most of a lot of people who work for church, but a lot of people who are in our 40s, particularly those of us who did not follow traditional paths of family. Right. Like don't have kids yeah. and a husband and whatever. And even some who do where church doesn't feel life-giving right now it feels uh -huh. draining <laughs> yeah and yet we are denominationally devout i'm devoted to the denomination right like i don't really have an interest in becoming a baptist yeah. um, 
But each time when I try to enter a parish life, I find it very difficult to do so. So what, 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 what really, what speaks to your spirit? And I honestly love just going, like what I, I do miss this part. I like putting on a nice, nice clothes, going to a place, hanging out with some old people, going through a good, a well-run service and then going home. Yeah. <laughs> that part of church, I absolutely miss. Yeah. Like I want to hang out with some old people, have them tell me that my life is terrible and insult me for about 15 minutes before or after service. And then I laugh at them and I go home. Yeah. <laughs> I miss communal singing. I do miss that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm like, well run hour, no more than an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah service this is why i go to like trinity and st bart's when i feel like going to church <laughs> like, yeah. it's gonna start and end on time yeah 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 <laughs> clockwork yeah i mean i that's i mean i i, I like to do it like we start right on 10 because i'm very i mean it's just like people come here to for that you know that mm -hmm. they want a church to happen in this and that's that's fair enough we, we should honor their time and do that um and you know maybe i don't know maybe maybe you'd find it a little bit different here than what you experienced it before but certainly that's that's my intention right to, um to have an experience of people where they can come in come in at 10 sit you know church starts we've got a new music director now the choir's built up um they're sounding sounding great and um you know afterwards people have been leaving because we haven't had coffee hour mm. and, and so you know we don't have the use of the downstairs hall because it's too unsafe before it gets renovated um and so there is a lot of that people just coming in experiencing church and then and then leaving um and you know we might get 10 12 people coming to the book discussion group mm -hmm. um, which starts 11 30 which is you know like 20 minutes later mm -hmm. um but what i have been thinking about is um whether we should be looking to start another congregation on Sunday afternoon um, that's more sort of geared, it's more contemporary. Yeah. Uh, and and would and more geared to young professionals like yourself that mm -hmm. um, come in from boozy brunch to church. Yes, yes that's <laughs> that's right. Full of the spirit. <laughs> first, first church was boozy brunch. Second church. That's right. That's right. I have one. And, you know, for young, you know, young and for young, young people with with kids, young people, singles, you know, mm -hmm. like this area is there's a lot of a lot of younger single people living in this mm -hmm. area now, with all mm -hmm. the gentrification and these all apartment buildings going up and they're filling up with people. Um, you know, we would get almost every Sunday, there would be one to three to four um new younger people would be coming into the service mm. um, but they tend not to come back because we don't have other younger people in the congregation right right so um so seeing someone in your sort of in, in your own demographic that like age demographic mm -hmm. especially that you could maybe relate to right. and then the fact that there's a dozen other churches within you know a mile of distance yeah, yeah 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 that you can church shop over 12 months and still not settled anywhere yeah 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 you know and just just go where you where you feel your heart is um 
I really just want St. Lydia's, but filled with brown people. <laughs> right. Yes. I love St. Lydia's so much. It's a great church, great congregation. Great, yeah, great it is a great but yeah. I, And it's like a perfect time, right? It's five o'clock yeah. uh, in the afternoon on a Sunday. So yeah. I could go to my, my mom's family dinner and still make it to church and like, or we could all go to family dinner at St. Lydia's and yeah, uh, it is a very white space. Uh, and it's not their fault, but <laughs> yeah. And they, they are great. They, I still love going to that kind of service. Um, but I do, I do appreciate a, a Sunday afternoon or like a Saturday for a while. I had went to like a Saturday evening one. Yeah. There's too. a few, few Saturdays at five too. Yeah. Cause then you're like, you feel like you did your church that weekend, but you don't have to wake up early on a Sunday morning. Yeah. And you could still leave and go to the club with people from church. So that's, that's true. If you want to go to dinner and go out to go to dinner, dinner, then go to you could go to church, go, go, to go, out, show, dancing. go out dancing, full Saturday night. Um, yes, no, that's right. And then sleep until midday on Sunday. Exactly. Um, but I appreciate this conversation about the the limitations of a congregation. I do think one Christian. A lot of people, I think, are. In, in, in my generation and younger are disenfranchised with institutions generally. Like, yeah. I, yeah, that's um, yeah. especially because those who are in, into church, my experience has been that there are very few people who are young folks who are into church that are not also uh, devout, like, if you are in an ambiguous space of like, I know there's something greater than me, but yeah. I don't know about this Jesus thing, or I don't know about this institution thing. Like when you're yeah. like questioning kind of irreverent space, how do you, how do you create a worshiping community that allows a reverence to exist while also yeah. honoring the belief systems of that space at the same time? Yeah. And yeah, and that's sort of why I feel there's how you respond to the space like how do, how does the space speak to your spirit, mm -hmm. and and how does how does the worship experience speak to your spirit, um, and sometimes like our traditional Sunday morning services don't speak to a younger heart in the same way, because they are very structured. Unless you're very liturgically, um, unless you're Tamara, like... and and like <laughs> traditional you know traditional nineteenth mm twentieth -hmm. century music um then it can feel constraining mm -hmm. and i always you know we, we sort of were taught to think like a little bit if you were starting a church today you know what what would you do um the first thing you do you wouldn't have it in the stone church right mm. we wouldn't build a stone church we'd we'd be doing church in contemporary spaces Mm -hmm. whatever they may be however they come about I mean I'm just saying this is why I was not ordained it's because all I did was talk about bar church and I was told that I was not Anglican enough but I've been saying this for a long time because everybody's yeah. been saying this for a long time I'm not new I'm not yeah. and and you know the the models of church planting the first thing you do is you start a home church mm -hmm. you know you go to where the people are right and you and you gather the people together and you have a common experience you build community and then you look for somewhere where because you hopefully grow out grow outside your house or grow outside mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. space or whatever it happens mm -hmm. to be and then you look for something that's a little bit more certain you know i've been there's a congregation here um, up the road here it's uh, uh redeemer it's called resurrection clinton hill but 
um, you know, I just been friendly with a pastor and just listening to their, they've been journeying like our church plant 10 years ago and they've been journeying around different spaces in this area looking mm. for a home and now they've just settled into an older church building a sort of you know 1930s 1920s 1930s church building that they may may get possession of and I was like you do realize you know going to these old buildings they're full of full of yeah problems and and you, the amount of money you got to spend on them you know is, yeah is the quite church plant part is hard because I do think I'm I'm thinking a lot about models for churches like a St. Lucas method which is a beautiful space and I want the space to exist as a sacred space for people to worship in like what are the what are the, and also we don't want it to be like the the episode of priest where all the evangelicals come and they put in a juice bar in the back of the church oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great episode um but how can how can the plants the church plants in terms of the the actual physicality of the building yeah. not distract from the ministerial worship experience of people in the community yeah and that's that's that cost burden mm -hmm. is a lot for a congregation to think about mm -hmm. so like the overhead of running this building is is substantial mm -hmm. our insurance bill alone is $125,000 um, our gas heating bill is going to be over forty thousand dollars this year. Mm -hmm. um, so you think of it, you know, a, a congregation has got to be able to provide the stewardship and the offering income to be able to pay for that, mm -hmm. which is and doesn't include salary or <laughs> doesn't include salary. No, then the staffing is another couple hundred yeah, thousand dollars yeah. on top of that. And you think, you know, this building was built for a congregation of seven, eight, nine hundred people. Mm -hmm. I think the most families on the on the register was like 1,200 mm. with 900 coming to services. You know, they were in the balconies mm -hmm. back because it sat 1,500 people. Well, now it sits less than 100. Well, so now the congregation is less than 100 on mm -hmm. Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, and and so it's a big burden on them to to continually meet the challenge. It's It's, you know, fortunate we have the... We were able to sell something and you know be able to right. work work that way. But I think if you're planning a church, you want you're sort of wanting to avoid that because the big cost is to be able to afford your pastor, right? You know your spiritual leader, I guess, within that that, that sense. You know, so stewardship's important, whether it's church plant or whether it's another congregation, because it's the community that supports the community essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so, so Andrew, maybe as like a, so I don't take all your time, but as a closing part is like, as a rector today, where you are today, sounds like you're doing and imagining new and new ways to be church in this post kind of isolation time. Hmm. But if you, unlimited resources, what are you doing, Andrew? Like you, and, and no, and no grannies to tell you, no, just no church ladies to tell you, we're not going to do that. Uh, they just say, Reverend Andrew, do what you want to do. What would your like fun rector life look like? Um, I'll get another clergy person here so I can work in partnership with someone. Yep. Um, because I, I do my best work when I'm when I've got a people to bounce ideas off and mm. to collaborate with. Um, so I would engage someone probably younger, younger than me, but someone maybe not ordained, but but I, I call them a gatherer. 
mm-hmm. someone who who has got a sort of a, a different set of gifts than I have um, to to help gather in and and sort of form this new congregation mm-hmm. uh, or the, or this new group of people um, and then and then to go through the joy of exploring what what that what that group is like I, I think there's so much joy in gathering people together and just just opening up the creativity um giving people a voice in how we how we worship god and you know i don't know i mean that i sort of love that you know mm-hmm. um you know we're reinstating our christmas for kids this year and two years ago or three years ago we had you know like 100 100 people here and and kids that were inquisitive and wanting to get engaged and you know carry the crash pieces mm-hmm. <laughs> and all that and it was really it was it's really uh I find it just it it feeds my sense of hope mm. and so to try and keep working to try and bring people back um in a way that just just connecting with people's spirituality I think you know just to have just to feel a sense that your heart's being moved by gathering together. Mm-hmm. That's where the joy is. And then it's just a matter of what what exactly does that, what's the shape of that, you know? Yeah. So, so if you need a job, call Andrew. He can't pay you, but if you want to, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to gather some people up in the community of Clinton Hill, Fort Greene. That's it. Uh, and uh, Bishop said he'll give us some money, so. There you go. Let me know. Yes, definitely. That'll be my part, my other part-time job that I don't get paid to do. That's right. Yeah, come be part of the fun. Sunday evening fun time. Yeah. I did actually really love we used to do um when we used to do evening prayer and then go to the bar. That was a nice. Oh yeah, down the corner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was a nice little time. Eventually, people just came to the bar part, but. So you move the church to the bar. Exactly. That's why I said, just do it at the bar. We just do even prayer right. at the bar. Uh, yeah, the, actually in the Diocese of Texas, they had this thing where they were saying um, to do, it, the bishop made every congregation do some form of worship outside of the church walls. Okay, good. Um, and and actually it became like part of why their, their Sandy, reco- not Sandy, Harvey recovery went so, right. has gone so well is is they already were connected to, to the community they were already hanging out with the homeless folks under the bridge for yeah. sunday worship so like yeah then you knew them when harvey hit and could pastor in that way or or yeah. be present to that community um yeah you've so, broken down the trust right the, yeah, the yeah 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 so your ideas of like the sunday evening experience i'm also wondering like what are the resources in the community that would be places even outside of the congregation the the yeah. worship space that you know like um one one congregation one of somebody i know has said that their congregation does two worship is going to do two worship services one sunday of uh community service and one sunday of study so like you okay. have regular literature i mean episcopalians need weekly liturgical worship because it's just in our dna but yeah. um I'm, it made me wonder about ways that um congregations that are trying to get people to come back could have other experiences that are equally worship filled equally yeah. um spiritually based that might invite different kinds of 
ways that people want to engage in the world. Yeah, that's very true. That's true. I'm going to ponder, uh, I'm going to reflect on that now. Reflect on that one. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, for the people, tell them where to go worship on Sunday for anything you're promoting or anything you want you want to follow that? Oh, yeah, so <laughs> come, and, come and worship us on Sunday at 10 a.m. here at St. Luke and St. Matthew. Mm-hmm. Um, a traditional, beautiful, right-to service with, with a really wonderful choir um, of, of mixed voices. And uh, Wednesdays at 12, mm-hmm. we have a midday healing service, healing Eucharist. And preceding that 11, we have a, a Bible study, which, is, uh, which has been really great. Um, engaging, engaging with... Folks just on, you know, the on the word in a in a fun way. Nice. Nothing too theologically deep. We just we just see how our spirits are moved as we talk about different stuff. And and um, otherwise drop by anytime. Awesome. Come see me. Thank talk. you, Andrew. Is Miss Thomas coming to Bible study? Uh, Miss Thomas is not coming to Bible study. Okay. <laughs> she has Bible study with another. another she does. Bible. She yeah. loves to tell me about her other Bible study. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. St. Lucas and Matthew gave me the gift of Dorothy Thomas, 97 now, I believe. Yeah, 97. Yeah. Um, and the gift of friendship with uh Cedric Blenman. Oh, Mr. Blenman, yes. Mr. Blenman. Yes. So yeah. those yeah. are my spiritual love people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, hey. there's some great folks here. There's some great people. I don't know why young people keep looking for other young people. This is we're gonna get on a little soapbox, Andrew. Young people, get some grandmas in your life. They That's will right. fix it. <laughs> That's right. That's stop, a... stop, keep going to church trying to find people that look exactly like you. Go to church and find some people who could be your grandma. <laughs> exactly. That are respectful and wise. Yes. I mean, sometimes they're not respectful. Let's be honest. <laughs> but they are wise. Boundaries, people, boundaries. That's it. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew, for taking the time. My pleasure, and it's, uh, it's great to have this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode of Pursuing Call. I can't wait to hear about how you are exploring God's voice so that you can participate in God's mission and dream for our world. Send your email and comments to Tamara at PursuingCall.com. That's T-A-M-A-R-A at P-U-R-S-U-I-N-G-C-A-L-L dot com. You can also visit PursuingCall.com to learn more about what I'm exploring and envisioning and thinking about. Thank you so much and have a wonderful and beautiful day. Go in peace to love and serve.